I'm thankful for this series that we find ourselves just beginning in Titus. Uh, and I pray that, that, you're, that you're taking advantage, full advantage, of the resources offered to you, that, uh, that the one sheet that is online, that you are using that, because it's taking us deeper uh, than we can, that we, we can go in 30, 40 minutes together on a Sunday morning. So please use that, especially this week uh, as, we, as we look at uh, the beginning of this, this book, of this letter. Uh, and the reason that we're in this series, the reason that we're focusing on these short 46 verses is because we want the message of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed more boldly and more loudly and more often and more passionately than the message that the world is trying to, to disseminate and to spread. We, we, want, we want there to be fewer and fewer to the point that there are no distractions uh, to what this church is trying to do for the kingdom. And from, from Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20 and Acts 1, 8, that we are to go and to make disciples here uh, across the river, across the state, across the country and across the globe. That we are committed to going with the message of the gospel. And that our only church, our only marching orders come from this book right here. That we are as closely and as, 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 as well as we possibly can adhering to God's word and his directives for his church, for his people for his sons and for his daughters. And I pray that's what we find when we, are, when we read through Titus. I pray that you are devoting time each week, each day to, to spending in Titus. Uh, if, you, if you have a Bible reading plan, I'm going to ask you just to, to put this on top of it. Remember, if, you, if you're an average reader, six or seven minutes to get through these, this entire letter. So speaking of reading, I just want to ask you a question. How many of you guys like to read? Like if you, if you had a, a few minutes, you would pick up a book or, or something and you would read. How many of you read when you have to? Okay. How many of you skip a lot when you read? Okay. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been guilty for a long, or was guilty for a long time of skipping over the beginning of books. That, that, where it says preface or acknowledgments or introduction. I want to skip past that, especially if I was in school and I was reading something for school. I just want to skip past that and get to the meat, the stuff that's going to be on the test, and the stuff that I'm going to have to write about. But I found that when I do that, I miss some stuff. Uh, Scott's, Scott's at home. He'll be back uh, in the office. I'm back working this week. Uh, but he's at home right now. But you guys know that he and I both love A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. I think Scott probably read it through this morning before services started online. Uh, but, but we love that book, and it's filled with rich stuff. But if you just go to chapter 1 and start reading, you're going to miss some truth. I want to share with you some things that maybe you've missed if you read these books because you skim past or you skip over the intro into the what we call meat. So uh, these are up on the screen. Uh, so if you want to read these books or if you have these books and you haven't read these words, it's because you're a skipper. Go back and read the introduction uh, this afternoon. But in the knowledge of the holy, before you even get to pages one, two, three, on page, I think that's seven of the introduction, uh, it says, or the preface, it says, true religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear upon time. That's rich, right? It's not even in the book. It's in the preface to the book, but it's rich. The messenger of Christ, though he speaks from God, must also, as the Quakers used to say, speak to the conditions of the hearers. Otherwise, he will speak a language known only to himself. His message must not only be timeless, but timely. He must speak to his own generation. That's good stuff. Didn't even make it into the book, the real book. and made it in the introduction. 
right? How about this one from, from Eugene Peterson? Uh, you guys may know him as, as the message guy, the message uh, uh, translation uh, version of the Bible. Um, but, but he wrote another book called Eat This Book. It's very good. But in the, in the preface of that, he says, in order to read Scripture adequately, adequately and accurately, it is necessary at the same time to live them. Not to live them as a prerequisite to, le- to reading them, and not even to live them as a consequence of reading them, but to live them as you, we read them. The living and reading reciprocal. Body language and spoken words. The back and forthness assimilating the reading to the living, the living to the reading. It means letting another, capitalize A, letting another, letting the Spirit, letting God have a say in everything we are saying and doing. It is as easy as that and as hard. And one more. Uh, this one's a little bit more recent. Uh, it's, it's by uh, Jonathan Lehman, who works with uh, an organization called Nine Marks. Uh, your leadership uses their resources quite a bit uh, as we try to make uh, and lead a healthier and healthier church. But he wrote a book called The Word-Centered Church. And in the introduction, he wrote this. God's word creates the church. And so churches must center themselves on God's word. As we trace this theme like a needle and thread through the the different patches of the church's life, my prayer is that Christians and church leaders from every denominational tradition will be strengthened in faith and the sufficiency of God's word. Now, if we were just to to pick up these books and go to chapter 1 or go to the index that some of them have and look for something that we're studying for a class or that we have to write about or prepare for a Bible study that we're teaching, we miss some of these truths. Now, maybe you're not a book reader, maybe you're just a mail reader, uh, and you, you, you do the same thing, though, when you get a letter in the mail. Maybe, maybe it's a start something like this. Dear so-and-so, thank you for your recent interest in our company. We pride ourselves, blah, 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 blah. Skip down to paragraph number two. Unfortunately, at this time, we don't have any positions that fit your skill set. Or, dear Mr. Foreman, thank you for submitting your resume to blah, 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 our church, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But down to paragraph two, we skip down. We're looking for somebody with more experience in working with this type of church, our type of church. Dear Mr. and Mrs., our adoption agency has a 75-year tradition of bringing families together. Blah, 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 skip down to chapter two. Unfortunately, at this time, there's a two-month waiting period for families wishing to adopt. Or we skip. Unfortunately, the test results show that there's significant growth in the tumor. Or we skip down to the second paragraph. We're pleased to offer you the, the, the position starting immediately. We're, sometimes in our fast-paced lives, we, we skip past significant sections of, of books or skip to what we think is the important stuff in a letter to get to the meaning, to get to the meat. But when we do that, sometimes we miss nuggets of truth in those three examples uh, or maybe sometimes you're reading a letter and uh, you find out that, hey, where's the details? And you find you have to go back and reread the beginning because you jumped over it the first time. In our fast-paced lives, we do that quite often with a lot of different stuff. And it's easy for us to do that uh, in, in, in reading Scripture as well, especially when you come to one of Paul's letters or Peter's letters. And you, you start and you say, oh, he's just saying hello. He's just, he's just introducing himself like he did in the last letter. So we'll just skip over that to the first heading so we can get in the, the meat, so we can get to the good stuff, the stuff that's going to make a difference in our lives. But when we do that, church, sometimes we miss truth. And we miss something that, that makes the meaning of the text more significant uh, and more prominent and more powerful in our lives. So this morning, we just want to slow down. And we're going to do that repeatedly. 
through this study of Titus. Just slow down so we can mine Paul's words for all that they are worth. So today, I just want us to, to look at this, to look at this greeting. Uh, verses 1 through 4 right, are really one sentence. I don't know if we have any grammar or English teachers in here, but I would love to see you diagram this sentence. Right? It would take a, a poster board for you to diagram this sentence. Paul, if you're an English teacher, Paul would have been your worst nightmare uh, because he loved the run-on sentences. So let's take a deep breath and let's read the first three-fourths of this first sentence that opens this letter. We read it last week uh, with the rest of the letter, but today we're just going to focus on this introduction. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of, for the, sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to God, with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested itself, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, our Savior. How many of you have ever been on a, a trip uh, and you're headed to the beach and you play the game when you get to a tunnel, you have to hold your breath all the way through the tunnel? Uh, or else, um, at least my dad told me the tunnel would collapse if you breathe while you're in the, the tunnel. Right? How many of you cheated while you were doing that? Like your sisters and siblings were over there like passing out because they're, they're out, and you're like breathing through your nose while you're, and you, you, right? that's, what, that's what you got to do when you're reading this opening se- sentence uh, from Paul to Titus. But I want you to notice what, what, what Paul includes in this. It's not just a bunch of words that he threw together. It's meaningful. It's rich. And we should look at it and, and use what is there because on it, on this introduction hinges the whole rest of the book. If we skip over this, we're going to miss some connections that are very very important and integral to our understanding and applying uh, this letter to our lives. So, he starts off by Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, servant is nice, but I think if you go to a more literal translation... I, like, I love my ESV, but I wish they would have translated this a little bit different. Because servant, it sort of carries with us this, this idea of dignity and honor and service to God. But a more literal translation, translation here would have been slave. And some of your versions that you're reading from may, may, have, may have slave there. Right? Slave has a different connotation than Servant. A slave is somebody, and while, while slavery in New Testament in first century times is not equivalent with our antebellum slavery that we experience here in the United States, uh, there's a lot more similarities between that and being a servant. Right? Sometimes slavery in the New Testament world uh, was, was in a way voluntary because I may, owe, I may owe CW money and I can't pay him, so I will, I will put myself in his service until that debt is repaid. But either way, whether it's slavery as we picture in our mind or whether it's that type of a bondservant type of of deal, there is submission to somebody. And that's what Paul is getting at here. I am a servant. I am in submission to God. Here's something for you to chew on this week. This is the only time in all of Paul's letters where he uses the phrase serve or slave slave of God. He uses it servant of Jesus Christ quite frequently. So why might he use and switch it up here a little bit? Right? I don't have the answer to that yet. Right? You chew on that. Uh, come Wednesday night to Angie's study a few minutes early, and we will talk about it, and you can enlighten me as well from your studies. 
But But he says, I'm a servant. I am in submission to God. But then he uses another term as well. But we have this idea of what a servant is or of what our freedom is in Christ. And I want to share with you something. And it's from the Interpreter's Bible, which is a commentary that I don't use a lot. But as I was reading and just planning for this long study in Titus that we're just beginning, I came across this. And I want you to know that this was written in 1955. And I only share that with you because like just like Paul's letter to Titus could have been written to us yesterday on a laptop, these words could have been written to us very recently. So I want you just to listen to this a little bit. Now, this is from a 1955, remember. While the term servant of God connotes dignity and honor as God's representative, the literal translation would be slave of God. This suggests a paradox of Christian freedom, which involves both self-surrender and self-fulfillment. So long as anyone thinks of personal freedom as consisting merely of the absence of any restraint upon his individual desires, he is in bondage to those desires. He is a slave to greed, of ambition, of lust, or his own indolence. He is not free to be his best self, or to render his best service to others, or to discover life's deepest satisfaction. The larger freedom is found only in loyalty to something greater than himself that calls out his best self. Such freedom finds its highest expression in loyalty to the God, the Father of Jesus Christ, as is indicated by the salutation with which the letter to Titus opens. Freedom comes in submission to somebody greater than yourself. There's an old hymn. Uh, that was written even further back uh, than, the ni- than 1955, 1890. A, a guy by the name of George Matheson wrote this, and he caught the spirit of Christian freedom in verse number one of that hymn. He says, make me captive, make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. The only freedom worth having is that of being a slave of God. Because in that realm, in that arena, serving somebody far greater than ourselves, we can be free from everything the world throws at us. Paul uses two terms to introduce himself, servant or slave, but then he gets to apostle. A slave, uh, someone who is in submission to the will of God. Apostle, someone who has been selected to do the will of God. In Paul's case, by Jesus Christ physically himself on the road to Damascus. And as we imitate Paul, as he imitates Jesus, this applies to us as well. You see, Paul lived to, see, to serve God. And, and it's apparent from his writings in Titus and other places uh, that, that he wanted to see that motivation duplicated in the lives of others. And because we are children, because we belong to him, we too have been chosen. And because we belong to him, we too have been called to serve God in many ways, chiefly the expansion of his kingdom. So he introduces himself as this slave, as this servant, and an apostle. And he continues on uh, with several phrases that that, that describe what, just what made Paul tick. 
What made him work? What made him lay his life down to be that, that, that offering that's being poured out, as he describes in, in other places? Right? What made him tick? Paul was in this for the sake of God's elect. Now, regardless of how you take and process that phrase, your, your, your translation may say, of God's chosen, but whether elect or chosen, regardless of how you interpret that, of how you study that and where you land, this is a reminder to us that God is both the initiator and the finalizer of our faith. Jesus himself said, no one comes to, Father, no one comes to me except through the Father, by you. You bring people to me. The Holy Spirit woos you. He, 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 he brings you in. He does a work in your heart. And then because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, he seals that deal as well. Jesus is the author and perfecter, to put it another way, of our faith. This verse reminds us that, that, that God is the initiator of all things faith. He says, for the, the sake of of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul is concerned, not just with those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, but that they grow in Jesus Christ through the knowledge of the truth. Now, we're going to get to this a little bit more when it's necessary for our discussion. But in Crete, as in Ephesus, as in Galatia, as in Corinth, as in Williamstown, as in Marietta, sometimes that, that, that knowledge of the truth and what faith is or what the gospel is gets contorted a little bit. And that's why Paul adds this qualifier to it, truth which accords to godliness. Now, accords is not a word that I use in everyday conversation. When somebody says, uh, when somebody comes to me, hey, uh, uh, what do you think, uh, does this accord with whatever? The thing that pops into my head is a small compact car. Uh, a Honda, that's, and I know very little about uh, cars, but that's what pops into my head. We don't talk this way. So what does this word accords with godliness mean? It means it leads to godliness. And that's important for us to remember because we can't get the horse before the cart because our, 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 our knowledge and truth, uh, does, uh, uh, excuse me, our knowledge comes from our faith. Our godliness comes from our faith. We don't prove ourselves to be godly and then God says, oh, here's a little bit of faith for you. Here's a little bit of salvation for you. No, it's the other way around. For the sake of God's elect and for their knowledge of the truth, which leads to, which develops you into, which makes you more godly. That is the truth that Paul is getting at. Sometimes uh, this, this truth, what's here, he's talking about the gospel. Sometimes we would call, I use the word doctrine to describe that. Um, doctrine or knowledge becomes deadly when it's divorced from godly living. You don't believe that? Ask Jesus how he felt about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had all the right doctrine. They had all the right knowledge. But man, they messed up on their role because it wasn't lived out in the way that they lived. Instead of identifying the Savior and, and pointing people to the Savior and saying, hey, there's Jesus, the Son of God, who came to take away the sins of the world, they put him on a cross and they crucified him. Doctrine becomes deadly when it's divorced from godly living. And godliness 
must not be defined in terms of any particular set of religious ideals. Godliness consists of expressions in everyday living of the character of God. Therefore, if God is love, godliness consists of loving in, a, in word and deed. If God is mercy, godliness consists of being merciful. If, if God is patient and kind, godliness is expressed through patience and kindness. While our expressions... This comes from 1979, the, the, the communicator's commentary. While our expressions and behaviors will never achieve godly perfection, we are called upon to reflect the nature of God himself through our devotion and obedience to Christ. Godliness is not, achieved, is not an achievement of a special few. It is the natural flow of a life in relationship with Jesus Christ. Hear that again, church. Godliness is the natural flow of a life in relationship with Jesus Christ. Thus, truth is always inseparably linked with godliness. Paul makes it his life's task not simply to to plant seeds, but also to, to grow those seeds into mature and fruitful Christians. And that should be ours as well, church. Maturity isn't measured just in the number of years that you have been a believer, that you have been attending a church. If that's true, I'm 37 years mature, and we all know that that's not true. Our maturity comes from an everyday surrender of of our actions backing up what we profess with our mouth, of our actions more and more closely resembling the actions of Jesus Christ, of our love being more and more in the vein of the the, the love of Jesus Christ. It's a day-by-day walk. That is spiritual maturity. It's surrendering that moment-by-moment to the Lord. It's surrendering every challenge and every opportunity, every, every mountaintop experience and every valley that you're crawling through to God. Maturity is this close clinging to all things God. Will we ever be able to do it perfectly this side of heaven? No. That's why we have grace, and that's why we must daily surrender to the Holy Spirit's leading. But we are called to be, more, to be maturing in our faith and in our deeds. And this purpose is only accomplished, the purpose that's given to the church, our great commission, our go and make command, a directive is only accomplished when people are well on their way to maturity. Otherwise, we spend a whole lot of time fighting and arguing and bickering, of spinning our wheels, of doing things that, that don't produce fruit, of getting frustrated with things that are going on around us, of letting the, the, the message of the world be louder in our ears than the message of Jesus Christ. We must be maturing, and that's what Paul is getting at here. Right? He is he is in the hope, or he is uh, for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads us to godliness. And then he starts to land the plane, right, in word number 305 of the first sentence of the letter, right? That's exaggeration. That's a little bit too much. Right? But then he starts to land the plane in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul's ministry is based on the hope of eternal life. To put it another way, Paul's whole life, his whole purpose for being is focused on the hope of eternal life. Now, hope is a weird word for us sometimes. 
It's a lot like love. We use them for different ways. We use it in different ways. I say I, I, I love God. I say I love my wife. I say I like, uh, let's see, what do I want you guys to bring me? Because every time I mention a food from the pulpit, I get lots of them. So Donato's Pizza, all right? So I, I use love to, to say all, all, all of those, but I, it's not the same type of love. The same thing with hope. When we throw the word hope out there now, all right, it's like this 50-50 flip of the coin shot. Right? Uh, it, it might happen, it might not. But that is not biblical hope, church. Remember, biblical hope, the, the hope of salvation. Peter talks about this in his letters. It's, it's a sure thing, undefiled, unchanging. That is the hope that we rest in. It's just that, that like now we are, we are squandering all right? in, 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 in a world of confusion. But heaven is our hope. It's, it's a done deal if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It is yours. It's not this, oh, well, maybe I get in on that day, maybe I don't. No, it's a sure thing. That is biblical hope. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And the reason that we can believe in that hope, and, uh, because God promised it a long time ago. Before we were ever on the earth and had an opportunity to mess things up, God promised this to those who put this faith in. In him, to his chosen, to, to his elect, to his people. To in Old Testament, that was Israel. In the New Testament, that's the church, those who profess a faith in Jesus Christ and live it out. Right? He promised it before the ages began. And you can also take it to the bank because unlike us, God cannot lie. If he says it, it's gonna happen. And guys, there is proof after proof after proof of that truth in this book. God promised it, it's going to happen. He is a father to the nth degree. Because as a father, I might make a promise to, to, my, to my children, and then while I may intend to keep it, and while I want to keep it, circumstances may dictate that I don't. It's not like that with God. He is above circumstances. If he said it, it's true. If it's true, take it to the bank in heaven because that's where you're headed. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. We make a big deal that at just the right time, Christ died for our sins. It wasn't just... Uh, the, it wasn't just the natural flow of the, of the world. It wasn't because we didn't want to wait, the, the Romans didn't wait till the next Passover because Jesus might become t- too big of a deal. <coughs> it was at just the right time, ordained by God. The first step was Jesus' life and his resurrection. And he hands that to the apostles. And the apostles hand it to us. Paul was entrusted to it that at just the right time, at the proper time, to use his words, that his preaching would continue the mission started by Jesus. And as Peter, as Paul, as Matthew, as James, as John, as they were executed, as they were died, pass the torch to you and me, to the church. And we see in Romans, we see in 1 Corinthians, we see in Titus, that it is now our goal to continue the mission of Jesus Christ by taking the message of the gospel to a world that desperately needs us. God fulfills his promises first in Christ's death and resurrection and second 
in the church's preaching of that same event. You see, Christian hope is built on the promises of God because God can't lie because he said it a long time ago and because he sent his son to finalize that promise for all of us. Jesus Christ went to the cross for his mission and that mission was you and includes you in taking that word to, to continuous people. There's a If you were to go to Old Bennington, Vermont, never been there myself, sort of want to go now, but there's a cemetery there outside a church. And on the epitaph on one of the, the, the tombstones uh, reads uh, this way. He says, he relinquished his office for the sublime, <coughs> for the sublime, <coughs> for the sublime, employment of immortality. He wasn't talking about a corner office with a nice view of the Ohio River. It's not the office he was talking about. He, 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 he sacrificed, he relinquished his standing in this world for the eternal. That pastor knew who he was and why he was here. Paul, from what we see just in the letter of Titus, in the introduction, even if we didn't have the other letters, Paul, we can see, knew who he was and why he was here. That begs us to ask the question of the church, what about us? Do we know who we are and why we are here? Now, we all have names. We all have family, family trees that tell a story. And some of those stories have deep roots in faith. Some of them, you're, you're the beginning, you're the roots of faith that will extend into the next generation. Some of we, we all have hopes and dreams and aspirations. Well, we all have skills and talents, and, and all those things are certainly valued. But when we think about our reason for being, our personal identity, and the meaning of our life, do we do so with God and his will in mind? This letter to Titus lays this, that challenge in front of us, uh, uh, that, that this letter encourages rather ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But the truth is, church, that the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you should have crumpled up that word ordinary and thrown it out the window. Because in Christ you have been made a new creation. You, you, you have been, at that moment in time, you were given everything you need for life and godliness through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have been called into the succession that includes the apostles, that includes our brothers and sisters who were heroes of the faith, that includes grandparents or neighbors. We were pulled into this storyline of people entrusted with the message of the cross. And if we skip over what Paul says about himself, and in turn what that then means about who we are, we miss the entire hinge on which this letter rotates and moves. Because what Paul tells us here is that he, was, he is all in for God. And he's all in for you. And we, church, because we are his spiritual descendants, we too should be all in for Jesus and for those who come after us. Paul's words are, are preserved for us. They were, they were focused for us to encourage us on this day. Who are your words encouraging in your life right now? Because you were, you were called to follow the example given by Paul, by Peter, by Jesus. See, every believer, every believer's life 
has been uniquely designed for ministry. I cannot do, uh, and to your benefit, will not try to do, what Becky and Mike and Jill and Chamberlain and Kendrick and Chris and everybody else who takes this stage does. My life was not gifted in that way for the benefit of the church. How is your life gifted for the benefit of the kingdom, for the church? And have you fully submitted and put yourself under the submission of the one who can truly set you free? Success in Christian ministry isn't measured by by innovating and by always coming up with the newest. Because remember, church, the message that we proclaim is an old one. Thousands of years old, but it's still the only message that can secure an eternity in the presence of God the Father. I don't know where you are today in your walk with with Jesus. I don't know if you have surrendered to him and even began that relationship with him as your Savior. But if you haven't, I pray that today is the day where you fall on your knees, whether figuratively or literally, and claim him and surrender to him. To say, I have done an awesome job of messing up my life. I need you to rescue me, to redeem me. If you haven't done that, I pray today is the day of your salvation. If you have done that in the past, whether it was last week or last decade, I pray that today you recommit to, to, to being that person in submission to someone greater than yourself and of being one who readily grabs hold of the, the, the baton that's being passed to you as an ambassador, as an apostle for Jesus Christ.